the power of being queer in the design field is really we understand the design process to an even deeper level because we had to carve space for our authentic expression in a world that doesn't always create a, a safe environment to do that. Welcome to Architecting. I'm your host, Angela Mazzi. You made it. This is the landing pad for raw honesty about connecting your career with your purpose. I'm going to give you the tools you need to be an unapologetic advocate for yourself and others because if you're here, you believe that the space we surround ourselves in matters and you're committed to project by project building a better world for all of us. If you're with me, let's get architecture. Hey, Bright Lights, Angela here. Welcome to part two of the Out in Architecture interviews. If you tuned into the previous episode, you heard my interview with Sarah Wojnicz and Giselle Santos-Rivera. Giselle was the catalyst for the project and had the idea that the LGBTQIA community needed to convene and tell their stories. She enlisted Sarah's help and together they formed an editorial group and recruited 24 architects to tell their stories. Today in part two, you'll get to hear from the other three editors, Amy Rosen, Beau Freo, and A.L. Hugh. And these stories are really universal. There is so much here about how being more aware and sensitive and empathetic helps us practice better, helps us preserve quality of life, and also helps us be more responsive to the people that are impacted by the spaces we design, which as a listener to architecting, you know, is a core message. It's one I talk about a lot and I know all of you are deeply invested in. Let's take a listen. Welcome to Architecting, Amy. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Rosen. My pronouns are they, them, and I am a sociospatial designer in Brooklyn, New York. Tell us a little bit about your story and how you came to be part of the Out in Architecture book. I have been friends and colleagues with many of my peers on the editing team and within the book for years, just simply because of my previous engagement with AIA and AIAS. Basically, right after architecture school, I became the national president of AIS, which gave me a lot of opportunities within AIA, seats at tables I never would have been at for decades if it weren't for that opportunity. And one person in particular that it connected me with was Yzel. As the book was in the infant stages of its development and the idea was just being bounced around, she really brought me into the fold and reached out to me because we know that we are two of only a handful of folks that are ever called upon to speak about LGBTQIA issues in architecture or advocate for queer perspectives. And we were really reflecting on how much of a shame it is that not only is the burden on our shoulders, but our voices are the only ones being heard. And I was just super activated by the idea of not only speaking and expanding our community and our understanding of who exists in our community, but actually sharing 
our stories with people far and wide to empower others like us and to raise awareness for folks that maybe don't have the understanding or the visibility into what we live on a day-to-day basis. Socio-spatial designer, that had me at hello. (laughs) Tell me what led you to that. I love it because it merges two of my areas of passion, right? It merges social issues and spatial issues. Growing up, I was headfirst going into architecture. Design was my trajectory, and it was the only thing I felt like I could actually do. But throughout architecture school, I just kept being pushed and pulled in ways that made me question, why did I not feel like it was the right thing? Why was I uncomfortable in so many circumstances? And why did I honestly not feel excited about going into the profession? And going back to my AIS presidency, because of the visibility I had into AIA and the profession at a national and global scale, I was able to get a peek behind the curtain into what goes into the profession, what licensure is all about, what the really building blocks, for lack of better phrase, no pun intended, are for what we do. And it felt so rigid to me. It felt so structured and directed in a very singular way. I felt really constrained by a lot of it. One day I just sucked it up and realized maybe licensure isn't what I'm really eager to get. I even had a deadline for myself since high school for when I was going to get my license. I was going to have a party on 10-10-2020 and celebrate all of it. And it was such a deeply ingrained deadline for myself that I forgot why I even had it. Once I finally relinquished that from myself, I was like, okay, well, what else is out there? What what can I do? What do I actually care about? And how do I actually do what I want to do? I realized that all the things I really was frustrated by in, in college were just the fact that so many things I care about were afterthoughts, whether it was sustainable design or human factors or inclusivity or the texture of space and the affect of space and the psychological relationship between our built environment and our communities. I just wasn't getting that at architectural practice. And I found my way to a firm called Plastark. We call it social research for the built environment. We do everything from data analytics to workplace strategy and change management. And we really kind of live at the intersection of architecture and design and people and humanity. And so it's kind of a wonderful, beautiful way to merge my nerdiness for data with my advocacy and drive. When we think about that converging with what you were doing as a spokesperson for the LGBTQI community, where do you see there being important intersections? I had two hats simultaneously during that time. I was speaking on behalf of students across the country. And at the same time, I felt obligated to speak on behalf of my other communities, my LGBTQIA communities, different communities that feel othered in in that space. I felt really less than in those rooms, whether it was because I was younger or unlicensed, add anything to the list of why my voice didn't matter, why I wasn't looked at as intelligent or worthwhile to listen to. Just it didn't feel like a space where my voice carried as much weight as the person next to me. And I think that's a metaphor for a lot of what we experience as an LGBTQIA community. This feeling that what we say isn't really heard or it's heard, but then maybe pushed to the side or it just goes in one ear and out the other. And it's not viewed as 
important because it's not a majority feeling. It's not this perception that it will appease the most users. In architecture, it's all about the best case scenario, hitting the most people, but that leaves out so many important voices. It's just that experience that I had that makes me want to help others not have that experience. I want to make it feel like we can not only speak, but have an impact, have our voices really carry weight and what they should be doing, be heard and be impactful. How would our built environment look different if that happened as often as it really should? In my mind, it wouldn't be my vision. It would be a collective vision. It would look like the result of if we put all of our beautiful ideas into a blender and and mix them up and then out came this cacophony of space and experiences. I think it wouldn't be monotonous in any way. It would be really complex and intricate, but also fun and playful and safe, but also maybe labyrinthic or confusing at times. The beauty of it all is celebrating the uncomfortableness that would result from that kind of a design process. If we stopped feeling bound by deadlines and budgets and preconceived standards of what good is and what good looks like, maybe we would stop creating boxes and start creating lives and just beautiful places to experience. What I really resonate with is that we could let go of these functional definitions we have for a lot of spaces. When you first start architecture school, they don't want to say design a house because everybody has a preconceived notion. So they come up with these funny things like design a space for living, but (laughs) that we really could start to think more about the experience that someone could have and design around that less than a formal program of space like we traditionally do. Yeah. Instead of designing for a bird's eye view, what if we design for the human perspective? What if we actually imagine ourselves walking through a space and design from that perspective? All the different sensorial experiences that you can create there. What you were talking about with first year architecture school, I think I talk about in my story in the book, a little bit about my thesis, how I was questioning everything about architecture. I ended up pushing for a queer architectural methodology. And at the end of my thesis review, head of our school was there. And when I was saying that everything was wrong, and I was basically saying that how we're taught is constrictive and objectively controlling, he asked me, how would you do it? And I was like, what? You're actually asking me? This is the first time I've been asked how I would do something. This is a new experience. I didn't realize how many times I had just been ignored or never asked those questions. And as soon as he said it, I was like, well, first year architecture school, you should start with more malleable materials. You shouldn't give people instruction. You should just let them create and explore their creativity before you give them rules to be bound by. If all you learn are the rules, you don't question the rules. It starts with school because certainly that shapes how we are in practice and even how we lead. I find education to be one of the most important things. It's where all the good starts and where all the bad starts, where the toxic institutionalized rites of passage begin around all-nighters and and health and wellness being secondary to production. And the cultural nature of architecture school is a metaphor in and of itself for what we create and how we operate as architects or as designers. 
Congratulations on getting this book together. What does it mean to you that this book is in the world now and available? First and foremost, that that we exist. These people, these lives are happening and that our stories matter. I found myself reading some of our stories, realizing that I didn't know that perspective, that I couldn't imagine that. There's so many experiences that we aren't familiar with and we can get so blindsided or pigeonholed in our own perspectives. I love the idea that this book is helping people open their minds to what we're going through and what their peers are going through, what they may not even know the person next to them in their studio or on their street is experiencing and just elevating that empathy a little bit. Personally, I was particularly vulnerable in my story. And I felt myself afraid of actually publishing this and putting it in print. But through the process, it was freeing in a way. It helped me realize like, okay, it's out there. Maybe maybe now it exists. And now my identity is something I can actually refer to or, or have context. So I think it's it's both for us as a community as it is our readers in the way that it can heal and inform. This is a community that is not monolithic at all. And it's kind of sad that it gets a label and there's this sense that, well, if you're part of this label, you know everything there is to know when you really don't. The beautiful awareness that you all have saying, well, we've kind of been lumped together, but we recognize how different our experiences are and that one of us really cannot be a spokesperson for everyone. Wish more people had that awareness in general about life because we go through life making a lot of assumptions about who people are, what they need, what they want. 100%. And this is only 24 stories. It's not even scratching the surface of our community. But even within those 24 stories, we were extremely aggressive about making sure we were as diverse as we could be, that we touched as many ages, races, sexual identities, gender identities. We wanted to create this intersectional narrative that helped a little bit to open those doors and show people and show ourselves the diversity that you're speaking to. I I just find it so ironic because we keep tacking on letters as opposed to realizing that we're trying to capture everything but this quote unquote normal. It's so limiting when it's termed. We're just trying to show what that really means and actually make it more than just a series of letters, make it something that we can digest, that we can imagine and nothing gets you like a story. Thank you so much for telling yours and helping so many other people to tell theirs. My pleasure. It really, it's meant a lot to me. So I'm, I'm just thrilled that it meant a lot to you. Really excited to be joined by another editor of the Out and Architecture book. Hi, Angela. I'm Bo Frail, pronouns he, him. I am an architect based in Savannah, Georgia. I work as a project architect with Fox Fox Studio, which is based in Austin, Texas. And I also have my own consulting practice called Activate Architecture. What brought you to this project? Tell us a little bit about your background, how you became an architect, and then how you ended up here editing this book. I've always been involved in volunteer AI circles. And back when I lived in Austin, was part of volunteering for the AIA at the national level, which is where I met Giselle. I did a lot of volunteering in community engaged design spaces. And I was starting to see how powerful it was to have design be connected to uplifting 
people and centering people who are usually excluded from the design process. That really struck with my passion and what I cared about in architecture. I started getting involved in design justice. When I got involved in the design justice movement and attended the Design Justice Summit back in 2017 is when I first really started to see how perhaps architecture and queer communities could work together. Sort of had always been separate parts of my identity. And the story that I wrote about in Out in Architecture actually talks about the intersection of my queerness and my work as a designer, as an architect. How do they inform one another? For someone who during architecture school was either in the closet or coming out of a closet or really letting people into who I am, they had really been in parallel tracks upward. Like as I was learning about design and architecture, I was learning about my authentic self. And it wasn't until kind of reflecting back on it that I saw opportunities for the two to work together out of getting involved in the community-engaged design and design justice groups and organizations, helping to organize a design competition for what would be like a pop-up LGBTQI plus center in Austin. I worked with a nonprofit there because there is no physical center in Austin, even though it's one of the largest cities in America. So I was working with other queer people and queer architects and designers to design something for our community. And that was the first time I'd been in a space like that. We had a charrette where we brought together 30 people. They were landscape architects, architects, community members, young and old, who were on different teams and envisioned what this sort of pop-up LGBTQI plus center could look like for Austin. Being in that room for just those four or six hours we were all together was just so powerful. And seeing people present ideas about how they could create space for, for people to meet, for groups to create community with one another. In um, 2018, the end of, of that year also, I had heard of first LGBTQI plus alliance that had formed out of AI Chicago. And so I had met some of the people in Chicago who are part of that. And then there was a lot of momentum from our design competition. And I talked with a few other queer design architects in Austin and we're like, we should really have an alliance here in Austin. We kind of had those ideas in 2019 following the establishment of Bone in Chicago. And then in 2020, we started the alliance in Austin. For me, being a part of the book really was just kind of the next movement towards more visibility, more connection with the queer community, being able to uplift stories and to be a part of a project that is now connecting people, not just in Austin, where I used to live, but now across the entire United States has been a really beautiful and, and powerful thing to be a part of. What do you think is different about being a member of the queer community and practicing? The why has always been the ability to channel creativity in meaningful ways. And you can do that through obviously your workplace, but also I've, I've always been engaged outside my workplace and more community grassroots type of organizations. When I was figuring out who I was and my, who I am as part of my sexual identity, being a gay man, I used a lot of writing and poetry and art to sort of get my thoughts out onto paper. You know, a lot of times it's really just our internal dialogue that we have when there's something we're not sure if it's safe to express that in public or with, with even the people that we care about, our families and friends. And so for me, poetry and writing became um, my first confidant. In a similar way to design, you can create spaces, right? You can shape spaces. And so I think the power of being queer 
in the design field is really we understand the design process to an even deeper level because we had to carve space for our authentic expression in a world that doesn't always create a, a safe environment to do that. Um, and a lot of stories actually touch on that in, in the book too, about how there's perhaps a, a magic or a, kind of that, that deeper sense of understanding of ourselves and how we navigate authentically in the world can give us a added lens for how we can actually do that through design as well to like understand how spaces could be created for someone or to exclude someone. It really has synergies with other who have been marginalized or excluded from the built environment in general. Having a collaboration and really a co-liberation with other marginalized people to try to bring in as many diverse viewpoints as possible into the book. Uh, being intentional to make sure we had voices from people who were immigrants, centering trans people and people of color in the book was important. It doesn't end with these 24 stories, but we have we know there's a lot more out there to elevate and share. Love what you said about having an empathy for authenticity. It's often the ego of the architect is I know what you need, you know, whereas we don't. Even if we're designing the same kind of space. It's going to be different for a particular client based on who's using the space, where it's located, et cetera, but also expressing identity because that belonging matters so much. I love that you're able to use the book to talk about how there is this added insight and call to action then for people reading the book, no matter who they are but also using the book as a grounds for building community and identity within the profession. Sometimes your queer identity can be that under the iceberg type of identity where it, you might not wear it on your sleeve. Some people have the privilege of that, um, other people don't. Knowing that there's people who are expressing themselves and bringing their full selves to work can let you know it's okay to do that as well. Right. When we are in a state of stress for any reason, we're in fear, we're in survival mode, and we don't have energy to create, we have energy to protect. I mean, you can see the, the research about diverse teams perform better when people feel like they can bring their full selves to work. They don't have to use their creative energy to code switch and to hide parts of themselves. They can just bring themselves and their creative energy to problem solve and to design instead of having to edit and navigate environments that can perpetuate harm. So as we've been organizing and editing for this year, last year plus, a lot of our community has been virtual, which I think is, is a really powerful tool, especially if you're a queer person in a smaller city. Like I live in Savannah, Georgia now. It's a smaller community. I may only know less than the number of people on my hand, how many queer architects are in Savannah. But I know I can connect with them now all over the, the United States because of these coalitions we're starting to build throughout our architecture, through the alliances. Thankfully, I had the opportunity to speak at some conferences and really seeing the outpouring of interest and energy at our sessions has been amazing. Like when we were at Noma, we were like, oh, if we have a small group, we'll break out into small groups and we'll each like talk with them and kind of workshop it. And then we get there and you know, 125 people room was sold out and there were people waiting outside the door to get into the session. And we're like, wow, there's a desire to hear about this content and to understand the intersections 
of queer identity with all other identities, with women, with people of color. I think it's an important lens that we need to look at holistically. I love the quote about there is no liberation without community. Audre Lorde said that. I always like tying it to the Lila Watson quote about because our liberation is bound up together, then let us work together. We can't work in isolation for liberating this group or this group. A lot of people's identities crisscross between all of them. I feel like the queer community is one of the most diverse communities because it intersects with every religion and culture and nationality and all the different genders, all the different expressions of who you can be collides with almost every other identity group in the world. It's an amazing thing to be a part of that activity of uplifting even just these 24 voices. Everyone's story is so uniquely individual. We tried to make it as open-ended as possible. If you wanted to write one page, if you wanted to write five pages, if you wanted to only talk about your queer identity, if you wanted to mostly talk about other parts of your identity, if you wanted to focus on your struggle or your joy or both, there's just such an amazing collection of different stories and different experiences in the profession that it's just beautiful to see. And I, I can't wait till we have even more voices. Thank you for being that crusader, not only in designing for this community, but also within the profession. I work with many architects who are part of the LGBTQIA plus community. And some of them are very open and expressive about it. Others, you wouldn't know it unless you knew them well enough that you heard them talk about their personal life. It is important that no matter how you want to show up in the world, that you feel comfortable doing that. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think it's always important to respect how someone chooses to share any part of their identity, like whether they share about their sexual orientation or their gender identity, or if they have aging parents or a big family at home, like it's always a personal decision to share that part of yourself. And we never want anyone to feel like they're being outed. But we do want to make sure that the spaces that people navigate in in our profession, especially ones that we have a voice to change that you should feel like you can comfortably share that. Even looking at some of the, the few surveys that we do have that ask about who even feels comfortable sharing about themselves, you'll see 90 plus percent with friends. And then it just keeps going down from there. It's like, and by the time you get to company leadership, it's close to like 50. And when you get to like clients and contractors, it's closer to 30, 40. You don't always have to share it, but you should feel comfortable that you could share it. Thank you again, Bo, for sharing your story and for helping put this book together and for continuing to be a voice out there in our industry that people can rally around. Thank you, Andrew. I am so excited now to be speaking with A.L. Hugh, an editor, contributing author, and the designer of the cover for Out in Architecture. Great to have you on, A.L. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'd love to hear your story. What drew you to the profession? What kind of experiences did you have that shaped your career? And what made you want to tell this story? I grew up in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. When I was growing up, I had no idea kind of what I would do. The answer to like, what do you want to be when you grow up was never super clear to me. Um, I went to UC Berkeley and like I got into Berkeley as an environmental and economics and policy major. 
but took one economics class and figured out that was not the major for me. So I went on a big kind of soul searching journey to figure out what my major would be. Took an intro to architecture class because I'd always been into drawing and was pretty good at math, you know, out of practice now, but really into kind of designing things and building things. The rest is kind of history. I kind of stuck with it. Um, It was just the right mix of art, design, and history, and kind of technical details that it just kept me going. I was really kind of enjoying my time. So I did the four years at UC Berkeley, and then I went to graduate school um, after working for two years in San Francisco. So I moved to New York City for grad school at Columbia GSAP, a graduate school of architecture, planning, and preservation. The first year I was there, I was really kind of like, okay, I'm in grad school now. I'm going to do everything I can to be an architect, right? I would dress the part. I would talk the part. You know, I would learn the jargon, all of that. But About halfway through my first year, I started to realize that I was non-binary. And at first, I didn't really have the words for it. I was doing a lot of research online, on Reddit, just like reading things. There weren't even that many books about non-binary gender at the time. So it was very much this like, okay, I'm I'm going off of what other people have experienced too. And we're kind of comparing notes. And then the summer between my first and second year, I came out as non-binary during graduate school. So I feel like my gender identity is forever kind of tied to my architecture education because it was very informed by if we can be speculative in architecture school and design different things and question frameworks and things like that, then I should be able to do that too with my own gender identity. I was also surrounded by a very supportive community of queer students, like my fellow classmates, who gave me the room to find myself and fall down and pick myself up and things like that. I felt really lucky that I had this network Um, from grad school of queer friends. Some are still in architecture, some are not in architecture anymore, but we're still connected with each other one way or another. When I graduated from grad school, I was really nervous about how I would stay connected to people because I knew we were going to scatter. And it's like, some people are back on the West Coast, some people are in different countries. I was asked to be on a few different panels, both in person, like pre-pandemic. There was one at the AIA conference in 2019 called The Silent Minority, LGBTQ Voices in Architecture. And then uh, there was one in New York City that was hosted by FX Collaborative that was also about like gender identity and being in architecture. And each of those times and in in future webinars too, where I was talking to students or talking to more kind of like um, a local AIA audience, it felt like there was a lot of energy, a lot of momentum, like, wow, this is so great hearing your story. But then it was like the webinar ended and that was it. And there was no way to connect with people as much as you wanted to, um, as much as you had like everyone's emails. It was like, how do you how do you grow that community? So when Sarah and Giselle contacted me and Bo and Amy with this idea of writing a book and having kind of this printed copy that could stand the test of time, you know, it felt 
like just the right thing to do. I published a speech that I gave at um, a symposium 2018. So it's like there's a video of that that lives somewhere on YouTube, but now it's also in this book. So it's kind of this history making thing for me. I love what you said about building a community because we don't always know this about someone. It's not the most prevalent thing about their identity and we don't always want to ask. So Mm -hmm. being able to have people willing to say, I'm part of this community, let's talk, let's explore our stories is so important. Yeah, thank you. What do you think is the biggest issue, though, that comes from having both the gender identification that you do and being an architect? As you are a professional in practice, where do you feel that gives you a unique point of view? I think as a non-binary person, I bring to my architecture practice a lot of thinking outside of the box, thinking kind of outside and beyond traditional systems and business as usual. One example is right now I am not working at like a traditional architecture firm. I am working for an affordable housing developer. And actually I am more on the community engagement side because when I was working in architecture, I felt like there wasn't enough time or space to incorporate that kind of process into the projects that I was working on. I mean, especially the projects I was working on, which was like high-end residential remodel or museum design, which is all great. It's, It's fun. It's great. But I just felt like I need to kind of be more of like an architect for the people and to take more into account all of the social and economic and historical contexts that have to do with the built environment. Architecture and development doesn't happen in a vacuum. I see kind of all of the different struggles and all of the different issues that we deal with in cities and in America as interconnected. I kind of come at my spatial practice with a little more of a holistic view while still maintaining the like, oh, let's get into the details of this design because we still want it to look good. Bringing that kind of bigger, wider lens of who isn't in the conversation right now, but needs to be in it and who isn't being served by architecture and design, but needs to be. It's easy to accept certain premise about what you do or how you do it. And it's great to be questioning some of that or saying, let's make a place for someone else to share what their needs are. What have you noticed are really the things that are missing in typical approaches to design? Typical approaches to design are very focused on budget and timeline. And for good reason, because that's the way that development and construction works in this day and age. It's more important to focus on, are we able to build this in a way that meets the budget so that we don't exceed the budget? Or can it be a product that is delivered on time? And I feel like that is all because of capitalist time, which gives us this sense of urgency that things need to happen now and the next thing needs to be here yesterday, you know, we just need to produce, produce, produce. And I find that that focus 
can really drown out the bigger picture sometimes, how things connect together and blind us to how we can have a bigger impact. Architects, because they're kind of working within this system of capital, have a lot of trouble breaking out of that. There have been some organizing, like with the architecture lobby and with uh, designers' protests, break out of the stronghold of capitalist time. But it's kind of the reality that we live in. Thank you for being someone who is taking that stand and who is raising awareness around this, because in the end, we're making environments that we know have an impact on people's well-being, physically, mentally, spiritually. This is why we're here. <laughs> no, we're not here just to get it done on time and on budget. Mm-hmm. So I really appreciate that perspective and all you are doing within the profession to raise more consciousness around the LGBTQIA plus community, but also underserved populations and mm-hmm. why their voice matters. So thanks so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for listening. You made it all the way to the end of the episode, which means you are committed to making yourself a priority so you can be empowered to do the work you were called to do in the world. How amazing is that? If you would like even more content just like this, please remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. I would so appreciate it if you left an honest review too. Hey, I want you to know I'm here for you beyond the boundaries of this podcast. You can follow me on social media at Architecting Podcast or visit architectingpodcast.com to download some great free resources. Take care, everyone, and stay inspired. Mm-hmm.